From Geek Historical Society, I'm Jordan Turner, and this is The Three E's. On today's show, we have Dr. McKay Murdoch, a physical therapist and holistic health practitioner. Well, how are you, Dr. Murdoch? I'm doing great. Thanks, Jordan. Is it all right if I call you McKay? Yes, it is. For our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. I am a doctor of physical therapy, and after a few years working in a standard physical therapy clinic, I decided to branch out into the world of chronic pain. Chronic pain was one of the most challenging things I came across in my professional practice, and it was personally something that a lot of doctors didn't enjoy treating and would kind of get stumped as to what to do about it. And so this got me interested years ago as to what types of traditional traditional treatments might be appropriate for someone that was in chronic pain. And this kind of led me down a lot of different paths. I found that that journey and that exploration start to overlap with what types of things actually added joy and health to really my own life, my patient's life, anybody that was looking either for freedom from pain or to maximize maximize their physical or emotional health in one way or another. You mentioned a little something about how you've benefited from this, correct? A lot of things that I've explored have been have been from the premise of, man, we can't seem to figure out chronic pain. And uh, both low back pain and associated depression is one of the most disabling conditions in the country right now and the biggest burden on our healthcare system and, and financial system. So, so what, could, what could be helpful for this, this major burden and this major problem? But then, you know, so that's what started me down the holistic side of things like meditation and mindfulness and yoga, for example. But then, but then I quickly found that that those types of things were just as enjoyable for me as they were for my patients. So yeah, there's been a huge overlap with what helps my patients and then also what do I enjoy? And I've, I've found both of those end up being very similar. That's cool. I guess you could say you practice what you preach. Yeah. Yeah. I've put, I've, I'd like, I like to say that I, um, I've recently kind of flipped that term around and I think initially I started with like, I actually, I had this moment, moment that happened years ago. I was given a presentation at a hospital and I can credit my wife for doing what she does best sometimes and calling me out. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I gave a presentation on chronic pain and mindfulness and meditation and mind-body connection. And, you know, I thought it was fascinating. I told interesting stories of phantom limb pain and interesting stories of the power of the mind and I got to the final slide and it was kind of this awkward conclusion of what was probably in everybody's head was, uh, you know, everybody that was there at the presentation, it was kind of like, okay, this is interesting stories, but, but so what, so what do we do about this? So it's this culmination, this last slide. And it was like, so you should meditate daily and you should do this and this and this. And it was kind of like my prescription of, if you thought this was interesting, this is what you should do. And later that night, talking with my wife, she said, you know, that's, you did a really good job presenting. People seem to be really into it, but you're not doing those things. 
so you're like you're not meditating and you're not doing any of these practices that you just kind of prescribed to these people so so that was apparent to me years ago and lately i've actually i've actually felt really strongly that i shouldn't preach things first and then kind of retrospectively retrospectively go back and try to practice those but i should only preach the things that i'm practicing so you know same words but a little bit different order of i am i'm only preaching now the things that i am actively living lifestyle and practices i that i'm already practicing on a daily basis then yeah i i preach those sometimes with words and uh sometimes through my actions yeah I, and i just from my perspective i think it would give you more credibility cuz you you know you're saying not only do I talk about such things, but I do it myself. Right. And then you can you could probably talk about the benefits that you've seen from such a lifestyle. Sure. I've found that you know everyone kind of has their own style, and uh, I I found that I lead by doing and by example better than even by preaching or speaking. You know, I enjoy speaking and some speaking engagements like this podcast, but. Even more so, I I love to say, hey, this is this is something I'm doing. Come and do it with me. I love getting right in there and in the practices that I'm prescribing to my patients or to my followers. I love doing it even more than I love talking about it. In the past, I know with current uh, the situation, you know, with the virus and how we're not really supposed to meet with more than a certain number of people. But in the past, have you hosted like? a yoga class or anything that people can just come if they're experiencing chronic pain? Yeah. Yeah. I've done, I've done a bunch of those things in the past. Yeah. I I find this interesting overlap. Chronic pain is, is my specialty and my niche, but so many of the people that end up coming to my events are those that really just want to thrive in life physically or emotionally and want to have a fun experience. So there usually is a heavy component of, of using your body and some type of body centered activity like that. But it, but I, I do find it applies to people that might be in, might be in some kind of physical chronic pain, like low back pain, but it also might be just a subtle emotional pain or might just be, and I'm bored and I want to be with people that are, uh, I want to meet new people and try a new fun experience. So yeah, in the past I've done some free yoga classes I've done some cold water exposure, kind of Wim Hof style, cold ice bath plunges, some breath work activities, some hikes in the summer and in the winter. And yeah, it's again, it's all stuff that I just, I frankly enjoy doing by myself. Yeah, it's something that I love doing. And like you said, it's, it's a bit, it's a bit at a weird spot right now with the virus to try to respect those guidelines. So Yes, and how how is your practice as well as your your events? How is that doing with the current situation? Have you been able to transition to digital in any way? Uh, yeah, so I do. I'm right in the middle of that. I do some. I I work with my patients in person, but I've also I also do a lot remotely. And so yes, it has slowed down some, but I'm using. I'm trying to use this opportunity to really just prepare for what life after the virus looks like. So I'm currently in the, in the middle of preparing a, a group class 
kind of workshop style thing that I will roll out right after we're allowed to meet together in groups again. So I'm using it as prep time. And then I'm trying to stay in touch with my patients just remotely and kind of guide them through wherever they're at and in their healing journey. So, but yeah, it's been a different, it's been a different adjustment. Cold water exposure has physical, physiological benefits and also a lot of psychological benefits. There's nothing too fancy about it. It is usually an activity that is done. So preceded by some deep breathing to, to kind of regulate the nervous system and get you prepared. And then you get in cold water. So there's, uh, you can do it out in nature um, through the winter time in like the Provo River or, re- you know, really any river can kind of create your own, create your own body of water with ice in it. So a lot of people nowadays are using like big horse troughs in their backyard that they just fill up with water and then put a bunch of ice in it. Or if the weather's cold enough, it's, it might that may be frozen or nearly frozen, but, but yeah, it's something that's been, it's been popularized by, by a guy named Wim Hof, who's, who holds a lot of the Guinness Book of World Records for cold water and ice exposure. He uses it as a technique to strengthen your mind, strengthen your willpower to, to intentionally step into uncomfortable experience and strengthen your mind through the process. And then he also uses it as a way to connect with nature, connect with the elements. And so, yeah, it has a bunch of different benefits. It's something I've just, again, I've personally benefited from it. And then I also occasionally recommend it to my patients, depending on kind of where they're at. And usually it starts with at the end of your shower, turn it on cold for a minute and a half. And once you get used to that, the next level is fully submerging your body in a cold body of water. How receptive are some of your patients when you suggest such a thing? <laughs> um, I would say most of them are pretty receptive. People like trying new things and they like trying something that they've never heard about before and that they can tell their friends about or post about on social media and, and uh, show something kind of exciting and different that they did. So people are generally pretty open to it. I think they get the sense that it sounds challenging, but also kind of exciting and and uh, energizing so yeah that's that's been kind of a thing that people are even more than other activities that i'm involved with there's something about cold water exposure that people are especially excited about and especially lately i I personally find that a tad odd because i i definitely enjoy my warm showers you know a warm blanket (laughs) Um, even in when i was in boy scouts for the summer camps when they would do the the polar plunge you know at like five or six in the morning, I was like, no, thanks. I'll just stay in my snug, warm sleeping bag. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely not for everybody. Yeah. But You mentioned in the, uh, your description that you had sent over for the website that you like to bridge the, uh, the gap between Western and Eastern medicine. Can you explain to me and the listeners what, like, what classifies as Western and Eastern, like, I guess, country-wise, but then what, what is that gap between the yeah. two? Yeah, so the what generally what classifies as Western medicine would be the medicine that most of us are familiar with, the medicine that exists in in North America and in Europe, being kind of the centerpiece of medicine, being the family physician, your primary care provider that 
prescribes medications and recommends x-rays and MRIs. And so kind of that whole conglomerate of the medical system we're used to standard healthcare, insurance-based healthcare, and then Eastern medicine being more, more Chinese, Indian, holistic uh, medicine. So kind of that, that region of the world that predates Western medicine and tends to be more mind focused. So uh, and tends to be more holistic and natural in their approaches and in their interventions. So I suppose a, a overly generalized version would be Western medicine being fully body focused and very tangible, practical in its approach and Eastern being a bit more mind focused. And so that would be kind of the, the very generalized distinction. The gap that I speak about is is kind of my attempt to get away from black and white thinking that we have to choose one or the other. Um, and it's something that I just I see a lot and I think is really prevalent. And that is, you know, people feel like they have to choose if they have low back pain. They, they either have to go all in on Western medicine and say, well, I need to take this anti-inflammatory medication, and maybe eventually I'm going to have this spine surgery, or I'll completely throw that out. And I'll believe that all of that is useless. And I'm going to just go totally Eastern medicine and go to yoga and use my essential oils and meditate. So what I've found is important in my practice is, you know, I, I started with a doctorate in Western medicine and really learned the benefits of what it had to offer. But then I also saw its shortcomings and the high amount of risk and cost that's involved and where Western medicine really falls short. And then that's where I started my personal journey of exploring the benefits of an Eastern mindfulness approach to healthcare. And and again, found that it had a lot to offer, but it was no panacea and had had its own risks and side effects, just like Western medicine does. So, so my attempt is is very patient centered. Um, I've toyed with the idea of even calling it central medicine uh, because of the way that it kind of bridges the two and really puts the patient at the center of it all. So, what I mean by that is what the patient cares about, what they value is the the most important part of the process. And then really cherry picking the benefits and the usefulness of both Eastern and Western medicine to help that patient be free of pain and, and back to living a life that matters to them, whatever that looks like. The, the patients that you tend to use more of the, the central medicine, mm-hmm. as you said, is it sometimes a better outcome? Is it like how how is that working for your patients compared to if you had only stuck with western or maybe even eastern mm-hmm. for that patient yeah so it i i've definitely seen better outcomes which is uh which is why it's something that i feel so strongly about and and have based my whole practice my whole practice around but what i i think the the shortest answer to your question is it really, you know, the central medicine does mean it's a combination of Eastern and Western, but it really just means the patient is the most important part of the process. And so for some, Western medicine 
is all they ever need. And it helps get them to the quality of life that they really care about. Whereas others, it just doesn't work. So I try to be really intentional that my, my approach is a very patient centered process, very patient driven. And we we're able to find what, what works best for them. Um, and you know, depending on what goals they have, because, uh, every patient's got a little different, a little different background, a little different value system and a different outlook on what success really looks like or what, you know, how they might define healing. Uh, my history is just Western medicine. You know, I've, I've heard of holistic, I've heard of oils and stuff like that, but I obviously, uh, you know, as a doctor, you have more experience in this than myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's something that Eastern can sound really foreign and yeah, it can sound really woo woo and, and uh, yeah. And, and foreign to people that's only exposure is Western and can, can sometimes carry with it a bad, you know, a, a bad reputation or really just can be poorly understood. So yeah, that's, that is a big part of my effort is to, to help people be informed and to help people find that middle ground between the two, to some more balanced approach. So you've mentioned some of the things that I guess kind of classifies Eastern medicine, such as oils, yoga, meditation, you know, hikes and cold water exposure. Is there anything else that you might use? Uh, for Eastern medicine? Yeah. I mean, everybody, everybody has their, again, their own approach to it with Eastern medicine. I would say mindfulness and meditation is definitely the foundation. And so regular structured meditation practice is, I think, the cornerstone of most any Eastern practice. And that can be, that can be individual meditation, group meditation, guided meditation. There's a lot of great resources out there in the meditative world, but that's definitely the cornerstone. And beyond that, there's a lot of different practices that can help you enter deeper states, can help you get to know yourself, can help get help you get to know the power of your mind. Um, and that list is almost endless. You know, it can start with meditation. Other people use assistance like plant medicines or other supplements or nutritional things that can help them alter their state of mind and access different states of consciousness. Other people use deep breathing to access similar states um, or, yeah, other things like we've mentioned, like cold exposure or other types of sensory experiences, float tanks, sensory deprivation tanks. There's a lot of different ways to access the power of the mind, connect the mind with the body, and learn about the power of uh, the healing potential that those types of connections can have. I've definitely heard that, you know, the the mind is powerful and sometimes pain is like a fan, maybe a phantom pain or something is just in the, in your head. Yeah. Yeah. What people, uh, what people, most people don't know is that all, that all pain is actually in your head. And uh, that's something that is usually news to people, but that is, that's not Eastern medicine or an opinion that's, that is very much backed up in Western neuroscience now. And that is, we know that, that all pain, whether it's you just twisted your ankle uh, or you've had pain in your lower back 
for 20 years, or you have phantom pain in a foot that, that no longer exists, that the experience of pain 100% of the time is an output sensation from the brain. There's a, there's myriad of factors and, and information that your body and your environment and your beliefs and your emotions all of that gets sent up to the brain, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's always the brain that decides based on the information given, is it beneficial to experience pain or not right now? And it's the brain that is the command center, sent the command center and has the ultimate say as to whether or not it wants to experience pain in that moment. So, so yeah, when someone says, oh, it's all in your head, uh, that's a hundred percent true. A hundred percent of the time it is always in your head, but that doesn't mean that it's made up or that it's not real. It is real. It just means it's more complicated and works a little different than we used to think 10 or 15 years ago. One kind of final question as we wrap up this podcast for those who might be interested in beginning with the, the breathing, the deep breathing techniques, uh, what kind of steps should they go through? So honestly, the, with modern technology, there are some really great apps on your smartphone to start with that I think have a lot to offer and can really help guide someone who's a beginner and, and make it accessible and practical. So my my personal favorite for meditation world would be the app called Waking Up by Sam Harris. And he is he's offering a special where it can be free for up to a year for those that just kind of want to try it out. And he's always got different specials and different things going. But that's that's been my favorite in terms of guided practical ways to start applying mindfulness techniques and mind-body connection for those that are kind of starting down this path. And there's a lot of others, but that's been my personal favorite. All right. I will, I'll have to look into that myself, but then I can also include a, a link to the website on the, the corresponding right. blog post for this podcast. 